This is the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cone Friends. If you would like to support and be part of our community, you can start by visiting zennovascotia.com. Last week we started talking about the paramitas. And if you're looking at them the way that I'm looking at them, because I'm trying to prepare for these talks, then you would find what I am finding, which is the same thing that people have found for centuries, which is that it's very hard to talk about them discreetly. Last week we talked about generosity. Today we talk about ethical conduct. But much of the time the way that I talk about ethical conduct is by talking about generosity. And next time, we'll talk about renunciation. And you could talk about any one of them to talk about the other two. And it goes on and on. So, many people have come to the conclusion that each paramita contains within it all the rest. In some cases, that's obvious. And in other cases, less so. I want to try to talk about each one in a somewhat distinct way. Not because that's honest, because it isn't. But because whenever we find in any conversation that everything is coming back to the same thing, or that it feels as if we're always talking about the same thing, then the question becomes, what is that thing? If I can talk about generosity as a way of explaining ethical conduct. And if I can talk about ethical conduct as a way of explaining generosity, then the thing I'm talking about is neither. It's something, it's something else. And the more we try to separate these out, the more thoroughly we kind of walk around it. And hopefully we can, we can form a, a kind of solid circle around this thing. This thing that I'm not going to name. Partly because I can't and partly because I won't. But I think as we go through this, we find that there's something, there's something at the center. And that we're always looking at it as we go. So as I said, the second paramita is ethical conduct, or shila. It's S-I-L-A. This is sometimes translated as virtuousness or morality. But it's important to understand if we get into a word like morality, that I think most of the time when we use that word, we imagine that there is something external. There is something some measure, some metric by which we can establish that something is good or bad. And in fact, that there is some force that's doing that. But ethical conduct, as presented within this tradition from the time of the Buddha, has never been that. The burden has always been on the individual to explore in each 
moment and in each circumstance what is true right now. It's hard. So morality may not be the most useful word. I think ethical conduct is interesting. There's a lot of talk in other Buddhist traditions, not in Zen, really, about what is wholesome and what is not wholesome. This is the word that's come to us in English. Wholesome and, and, and unwholesome or not wholesome. And if you want to, if you want to explore in those other traditions, you can find lists, of course, because it's Buddhism. You can find lots of lists and lots of charts that will explain for you what is wholesome and what is not wholesome. I'm not going to do that for you either. That, to me, is really beside the point of this conversation. All of the the juice of the question around ethical conduct is the question around ethical conduct. So if I tell you that doing this is good, then we're done. And if I say, well, just simply don't do this, then we're done. It's not that easy. So leaving this word open, another way that that I found uh, that this paramita is described is as a wholehearted commitment to what is wholesome. The key words here being wholehearted commitment. I've been very interested recently. I read an article a couple months ago about uh, high-context and low-context cultures. And I've spoken with some of you about this because it just seems to apply to everything that I see. It's that kind of new information that I'm using it. It's my new hammer and everything is a nail. A high-context culture is a culture in which not a lot of things are spelled out. Japan has a high-context culture, which means that when you do a business deal in Japan, the contract is not the point. The trust is the point. The feeling between the parties involved is the point. The history around the transaction is the point. The context builds what is real and what is not real. I'm told that France also has a very high context culture and that that's one of, part of what makes Canadian French so interesting because can, Canada is a low context culture like the US and that's going to affect the way you speak the language. A low context culture kind of, it doesn't look at all that other stuff. It looks th- at the contract. <laughs> We have a deal. And in the same way that, that we'll, we'll you know, come up with some creative way to play a game that may or may not be cheating, and then say, but there's no rule in the book about this. Mm-hmm. Right, that's a low-context idea. If it isn't written down, it's fair. <laughs> in relationships, in business, in everything, 
we will insist that the parameters of our exchange be determined, that they be clear, that they be absolute, and that anything that falls out of that, it's not really relevant. I bring this up because of the idea of wholehearted commitment. In a low-context culture, what we want when we talk about ethical conduct is we want to be told what to do. <laughs> Just simply don't do this, this, or this. People come to a tradition like this and they, they ask questions like, do I have to be vegetarian? And, and they may, in asking that question, actually be hoping that you'll say yes. Because if the answer is yes, that's a contract and that's very clear. Okay, check that box. Mm -hmm. I'm doing the right thing. Right. And we foil that and we say, I don't know. It's very frustrating. True commitment, this kind of commitment, has to be, it has to go beyond a contract. It has to go beyond something as simple as, as do this. I was speaking with a, another teacher recently, a Dharma teacher, who was black. And she was talking about her, her experience of racism in Buddhist sanghas and saying that she felt it was quite pervasive, actually. And I said, I, I feel such a disconnect with what you're saying because if there's ever been a community of people who are just dying to get it right, it's, it's a bunch of Buddhists, right? And she looked at me and she said, but that's the problem. You can't get it right. We want to be told what to do. If I just do this, I've done my part. If I say this, or if I don't do this. But anytime that we think we can get it right, that suggests that we think we can get it done. <laughs> right? And the to-do list on our fridge, we can scratch that one off. <laughs> right? End my own part in institutionalized racism. Get out my Sharpie. Done. Because I followed the four steps. We're desperate for this. But in order to be authentic in relationship to something like this, this question of ethical conduct, we have to get beyond that. We have to let go of that. And we have to settle into what this teacher said which is you can't get it right. You can't. We have guidelines. We have ideas in our head that guide us toward what we think is wholesome. Be kind. That's very vague. But we think we know it when we see it. Be honest. 
in the history of this tradition, probably the, the through line has been to do no harm. But we should really say to not try to do harm because we do harm. We do harm all the time. There is nothing we do that is karmically neutral. There is no safe zone. Doing nothing doesn't help anything. It's like people who don't vote because they think, well, then it's not my fault. But you still participated. You participated by not voting. If you voted, you participated. You can't get out of it. There's no escape from this. There's no escape from the question and there's no escape from the reality that not only will we not always get it right, but that we won't know when we did and we won't know when we didn't. Because to be able to know that we got it right suggests, again, this initial idea of morality, that there is a metric, that there is a measurement, that someone somewhere said, she nailed it. And that isn't happening. So what do we do? In my understanding of this, if I'm honest with myself, if I try to look at the part of this that is hard, it means stepping beyond my simple ideas of what looks good and what feels good and what other people think are good. Going beyond what is easy. We all have things that we do that are virtuous but easy. And by definition, we don't have to worry about those because we're already doing them because they're easy. Right? There's no juice there. It's not a question. For me, people have, so many people in my life over the years have said, Oh, wow, you're vegetarian. I could never do that. And maybe for that person it's true. But in my own case, if I'm honest, being vegetarian has come at no cost. It's easy. It really has not disrupted my life. I'm not crying myself to sleep at night because I don't get to eat a steak. I just don't crave it. And so, though I may be able to attach a story of virtuousness to that choice, the fact is that I'm not really struggling with that one. Right? So I'm not going to put my ethical conduct question eggs in that basket. That's too much like checking a box. Well, but I'm already doing that. That's probably what you would do anyway. If you're just kind of a nice person and then you say nice things to people, you don't get to pat yourself on the back. Because you're doing what what comes naturally to you. So in order to really investigate the question of ethical conduct, you have to ask yourself, 
Where is your edge? Where are you failing in this? And for me, though I know there are many areas, the one that comes to mind today as I'm thinking about this is in the area of speaking up. In my lifetime, how many times have I been in a room where I saw that something wasn't right? Something was going the wrong direction. Something was being said that I knew was off. And I chose not to say anything because of one of my hundred reasons. Well, no one's really going to hear it. Right. Or I don't have enough confidence about this situation to be able to say exactly the thing that I need to say. So I'm going to hold back. Right. I'm not the expert. I know something's off, but I don't know what to say. I'm just going to sit back or the variation on that, which is, well, I haven't really earned my right to say this. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get there. You know, six months from now, I'll say it. A year from now, I'll say it. Or, more often, if I say this, it will complicate my relationship with this person or that person in a way that will make things more difficult than they are today. So I'm going to, uh, in the interest of decorum, keep my mouth shut. I don't think I'm alone with ha- in having this particular difficulty. I have many times not said anything or not said what I felt needed to be said, or I have looked around the room thinking someone else is going to say it. Huh? You know, that guy always says it. And he's here and he's good at it. And then it doesn't get said. And so for me, some of the edge of ethical conduct has to do with standing up. Not because I know what is right. Because I don't. (laughs) But because in some cases, I know that something is wrong. I think that I too often take the long view. (laughs) I too often take the path of least resistance. And I too often relinquish the question of ethical conduct to someone else. (laughs) Be it someone in the room or someone in the greater society. I just think someone who's better at saying this is going to say it. And that will be great when they do. For me, this example is also useful because if you've ever seen someone take that stand, maybe when it was hard for them to do it, you see how clumsy it can be, right? how unskillful it can be for someone against all of their own instincts 
to stand up and say, but, (laughs) and then try to, try to get it out. It's not beautiful and eloquent. And it rarely hits the mark right in the middle. But it hits something. That's not the only way for someone to struggle with this, but that's one for me that's very alive. So I come to you tonight to talk about ethical conduct, and I'm going to give you nothing. Mm -hmm. Nothing. (laughs) You don't get even one hint about what is wholesome and what is not. Except this. That you know, you know from your own life, that you are not always stepping up. You know that in your own life, you are sometimes taking the path of least resistance, however that looks for you. You know that there are things that you are just leaving be. Because of all the concerns I listed, about the politics of it, about your own skillfulness and relationship to it, about whatever that is, I don't need to tell you how to approach ethical conduct because deep down you already know some of the ways in which you haven't. (laughs) That's where this becomes very sharp is when you can be honest with yourself about that and start to bring forth an intention from that that says next time that arises, next time I meet that, I'm going to meet it differently. And with that, to carry the wisdom of understanding that when you do that, you're not going to save the day. And music won't play. And you won't suddenly sprout a cape. But you'll feel better. because you will have changed your own trajectory in the direction of this thing, this thing that's in the middle. And that's where I'll stop. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com.